This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Crack that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On the show today, Rachel Williams and Erland Ofta Arnsen, two people who were closely involved in true life scams, which have become pop culture phenomena. Our host today is Manveen Rana, award winning journalist and host of the Stories of Our Times podcast. Here's Manveen with more. Scrolling through the Netflix charts, as we all do now, can provide an intriguing window into the soul of our society as it catalogues the collective tastes and fascinations of our time. And at the moment, those charts are dominated by two brilliantly compelling shows, Inventing Anna and The Tinder Swindler. So what does it say about us as a society that we seem to have an insatiable appetite for not just true crime, but this particular subgenre featuring the grand scammer, those intriguing, oddly magnetic characters, and of course, the luxurious world of private jets, designer clothes and wild parties that they inhabit. Why is it that we can't seem to get enough? Today, we're hoping to find the answer and to help us, we're joined by Rachel Williams and Erland Ofter Arnsen, two people who were closely involved in the real life stories behind the sensational scams that eventually inspired Inventing Anna and the Tinder Swindler. Rachel is a writer and editor and the author of My Friend Anna. In 2016, she became close friends with Anna Sorokin, or Anna Delvey as she called herself then. The friendship disintegrated after Anna scammed Rachel out of $62,000, later being convicted of multiple counts of attempted grand larceny and stealing a total of over $275,000. Erland is an investigative journalist from the Norwegian newspaper Verdensgang, known as VG, who worked on unveiling the scams of Simon Leviev, previously known as Shimon Hyatt, and now better known to the world at large as the Tinder Swindler. The documentary that follows Alain's investigation is currently hovering around the top of the charts on Netflix, alongside Inventing Anna. Leviev allegedly introduced himself to women on Tinder as the son of a billionaire before stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars from them. So, Rachel and Erland, welcome to Intelligent Squared. Rachel, I wanted to ask, could you tell us a little bit about Anna as a character, her personality, how you became friends and what was it about her that was so convincing? 
I think that the question about Anna as a character is is probably more on the nose than we realize, no matter whether you're talking about Netflix or just in regular life, given that she was posing as an heiress. She was and is very bold, ambitious, entitled, outgoing, sort of the polar opposite of me when I met her. She was living in New York in a hotel full time. I was introduced to her through friends. I didn't think much of it because it's not as though she was wearing a name tag with all these quirky things we now know about her. Um, it kind of the story of her pieced together from different sources over over the course of a year. And she had told people, sort of seeding these little uh, pieces of information in various circles, that she was from Germany and her family was very wealthy and she had a trust fund and she was working on collecting art so that she could build this foundation. And she had this very grand dream and she could paint this illusion of it that kind of kept people wrapped in, in her plans. When it all started to unravel and people realised, you know, she wasn't all that she'd said she was, did you have any sense of why she'd constructed this world around her? Did you have any sense of why she did it? I'm not a mental health care professional, obviously, but I do think there is some some degree of sort of a delusion there. But I think with someone like Anna, it seems to me that she doesn't understand why if she says something is so that it can't be. She uses her confidence as, as a way of almost manifesting whatever it is that she's going for. A lot of people sit and stare and wonder, well, was she really going to do the foundation or was she not? And the mystery and that sort of enigma is part of what I would argue is the con. It's part of the charade because it keeps you watching and guessing. And while your brain is busy spinning in circles looking at that, she's busy doing something else. At her trial, I understand she said it was never about the money, it was about power. Do you think there's something in that? I do. I think that from, from my experience, uh, I saw Anna sort of play life as if it were a, a game of chess. And to her, other people seemed to be pawns. So I think that would ring true when, when it comes to sort of being thirsty for power versus money. It, it's, it's all about how to advance her and her agenda. And Erland, when you were first presented with this story... What did you think? I mean, what was it about Simon Leviev that seemed to be so convincing? This story came to our newsroom in June of 2018. Um, Cecilia Fjellhau, which we know through the documentary, reached out to us and she wrote some things that is very unusual to see in a Norwegian newsroom, an international Israeli son of a diamond billionaire. She had come in contact with him. She mentioned private jets and fancy cars, but also an elaborate scam using basically threats on his life, which, you know, extended to her as part of their relationship which she had used to create a, a turning point in their relationship uh, to get money from her, basically. And for her, it was never, you know, about lending someone her money, but to, to try to, to save his life and step in when he needed her after a month of he demonstrating very, you know, unusual lifestyle of very high spending, extreme travel, extreme hotels and luxury wear and goods. There was no reason to believe that she, he was not good for it, which created the whole thing of reaching out to him and helping out as a very, very small thing in a world where he, of course, would, you know, own, own that. But as we all know now, it was part of a Ponzi scheme where the way he gained her trust was to use other women's money or other people he had scammed to convince uh, the next one that he was rich and wealthy. Having watched him, which I know you did, you know, in the investigation, you sort of followed him for a while, you sort of saw him in action, you saw him sort of meeting people. Did you ever get a sense while investigating the story of why he did it? That's a good question, and I think that's also where where you can see maybe see a difference between him and uh, and Anna Sorokin. 
as far as I understand, there, there was, you know, a grand plan there to create an art foundation. She was trying to, I don't know, make a, create some sort of legacy or something long lasting at least. But in the story of Simon, it's quite the opposite. In the specific story with Cecilia, we see how every single dollar and cent is spent then and there. He uses it to sustain and perpetuate his, uh, his luxury lifestyle. His digital presence, his social media presence and his lifestyles became dependent of each other. He needed the money to sustain that persona in the online world and all the way around. So for him, it was, you know, just spending, spending, spending. We don't see, you know, a large plan for the future there. It's about getting the luxury then and there. And when you were reporting this story, when these women sort of came to you with their experiences, do you feel a real responsibility to them as victims? Putting the story out there must have been quite difficult because, you know, we saw instantly the reaction to the piece that you put out and then again to the documentary. There are an awful lot of people who are very sympathetic. They sort of see that they these women have been manipulated. But there's also a lot of people out there who are branding them as gold diggers or, or as gullible. Were they? I don't think so. What we really worked hard on uh, with presenting the story, if people go back to the original piece, uh, which we published in, in February of 2019, they see how we try to recreate the experience of Cecilia and Pernilla through using, basically, you know, showing how this happened on their very phones and through the massive trove of WhatsApp messages, of voice memos, of pictures, videos we got, we were able to, you know, to recreate how this developed from the inside. And what we hoped to demonstrate was how this could have happened to anyone. And of course, on the journalistic ethics side, we had meetings explaining how this obviously would be received in the public and in, in social media. And we also had a standing invitation to at any time drop out and say, I don't want this to get published. And then it would have been the victim's choice to do that. And what motivated them to come to you with their story? Because it does place them in a very vulnerable position, letting the world know that they've been conned. For us, it starts with Cecilia, a Norwegian woman that reaches out to a Norwegian newsroom. And that story basically starts when he, she walks out of a police station in a small town called Lillestrøm, side of Oslo, trying to report this scam, but not being very well received there. That was her experience and sensing that this wasn't going anywhere. And maybe not so hard to understand. She was a UK resident that had given a card to a man in a meeting in Amsterdam, and he had spent the money on several continents and probably a dozen national jurisdictions, you know. So how, how was it possible for Norwegian police to follow this? And that's when she decided to reach out to us, to journalists, because, you know, journalism can cross borders and we can expose his name and his face. And if we got the proper documentation, we were able to, you know, reach that point where we could print his name and print his picture and tell the world what he did so that she at least would be able to stop him from hurting, ruining other people's lives. And that was the woman's motivation, as far as we understood. When you did manage to sort of get hold of Simon Leviev, when the consequences started to hit and the police were suddenly taking more of an interest, your stories were making a real difference. People were hearing about what he did. There is a moment in the documentary where you do sort of see a sense of his downfall. How did that feel? That's something, you know, we saw afterhand and, and maybe when the documentary came out, because the third story in the Netflix documentary is, you know, about uh, Eileen, this Dutch woman. The documentary tells how she reads our story and realizes that her boyfriend and possibly the man she was going to share a life with and move in with uh, was a lie and a fraud. And through her story, we can see that downfall. 
I'm not here to, you know, share any feelings. That's not for me. Was there a little bit of satisfaction there? Well, I can say that we were uh, glad to make a difference for Eileen, that she was able to um, come to terms with it all and and, uh, be able to get out of uh, a relationship which was a lie. Rachel, for you, a lot of people who view these documentaries are sort of coming away saying, well, it could never happen to me. I would never be fooled by this. Talk us through what it was actually like for you What was the process of getting to the point where you were parting with money to somebody you really trusted? To people who say that, I always just say, I hope you're right. But I think when we look at things in hindsight, everyone can pick the red flags out immediately. But when it happens in real time, it's not as though things are presented in this way that sets off alarm bells or or else nobody would ever get conned. I think the thing that was surprising to me when all of a sudden I realized what was going on was that it wasn't as though I hadn't been paying attention. The way it works is I think con artists, or at least Anna, was a really masterful storyteller and she was very good at rationalizing her behavior and explaining away everything. She had a story for anything and she could come up with one very quickly as soon as you tried to get something direct in terms of information from her. And it kind of leaves you spinning. So I think really the art of storytelling is a big part of how she was able to keep the illusion going for so long. In terms of the process of picking it away, at a certain point you realize that there's a problem. Obviously for me, it was when I was owed that enormous sum of money. Um, and I kept asking for concrete, factual information, you know, wire transfer numbers, federal reference numbers, cashier's check, times, things that actually were more concrete than these sort of abstract, it should be soon, I already sent it, I'm waiting on a call, those kind of ways she kept moving the goalpost back. But just because you know there's a problem doesn't mean you know what to do about it. With Anna, I mean, what was it about her that allowed you to think when you were parting with the money that she would pay you back? What would she sort of say to you? How would she do it? I haven't actually seen the full Netflix show. Maybe you know, I hope you realize I, d- I definitely didn't cooperate with it. I had no no part of it. And I, I think that the character who plays me has, has pretty much the spelling of my name in common with who I am as a person. But when it came to Anna and the way that I ended up out that money, it wasn't like she'd asked me for a loan necessarily. It snowballed. It starts with a penny. And then once you're in for a penny, when we got to the airport on the way to America, she checked her wallet, which I know, of course, sounds like such an obvious thing now, but she was always a little messy. It wasn't outside of the realm of what she would do. Here I am still rationalizing the behavior. But then once she's borrowed money for meals or whatever it is, it becomes like, okay, well, we'll just add this next thing to it and you can reimburse it all at once. Of course, the hotel was something very different. I had begun covering costs outside of this hotel in Morocco because her cards weren't working, but it was only the day before I left that these managers arrived in the villa and wouldn't leave without a functioning credit card. And I was leaving before the rest of the group. I was told the final bill would be settled when they checked out. I thought it was going to be a temporary hold. There was just no other choice. But of course, it was only after I left that I learned all the money had gone on my cards. That must have been a hell of a shock. It was, but Anna was so good at immediately picking up a new narrative. In the same breath, she told me, oh, the you know the manager sending you a receipt. It was a Friday. She said, I'll wire you the money on Monday morning so you'll have it by the end of the weekend. So the alarm bells that immediately went off were instantly quelled by this sort of like fake promise that, of course, never realized. And Rachel, you mentioned the documentary and you mentioned, you know, the, the, the series and you mentioned that you haven't really watched very much of it. I mean, tell me a bit about that. Um, How did you feel when you heard that 
Shonda Rhimes, who you know is known as a, a powerhouse in, in Hollywood, was turning this into a Netflix series, but also, crucially, that Anna would be profiting from it. There's a lot to unpack there. At the time, Netflix had optioned this article by a writer named Jessica Pressler. My um, book had been optioned by HBO. So when Netflix eventually did try to come to me to get the rights to adapt my piece of the puzzle, it was unavailable. I understand there are lots of different ways to tell a story. I certainly don't feel competitive over this space. Honestly, I want nothing to do with this space. But I found myself stuck in a narrative. and, And part of the reason I'm still talking about it today is after having had a front row seat to the way that Anna's cons work, I now see the same pattern on a much bigger scale with regard to the way that storytelling is still being used to create a false narrative. I think people are referring to this as a documentary or a docuseries, and it's absolutely not. It's fiction. They've done this very, um, to me, sort of troubling thing where they've cherry-picked names and facts, and then they put a disclaimer on the front of each episode that says, everything in the show is true, except for everything that's not. I don't remember the exact language. It basically says, this is fiction. In my mind, that creation of that half-truth is actually more dangerous than a lie, because people who are watching it can Google facts or find my full name. You know, that's how belief is formed. You, you have emotional connection to these stories you're being told. And a show like that by Shauna Rhimes with these wonderful actors, that's so much easier to connect with than watching the news or hearing something someone tell their boring facts. So people really take that as truth. But my character in that show is she's told that she's being suspended from her job. Her boss accuses her of being complicit with a convicted criminal and defrauding the company. None of that ever happened. I feel like my name has been inhabited by this stranger and, you know, run amok through goodness knows what in front of who knows who. And I'm getting so much animosity and hatred. Apparently someone maybe sets my character up as racist. It's a lot to navigate. And it's also just very surreal. I laugh because it's so absurd, but it's really, it's very troubling. And and the kicker is that when it comes to my character, as much as I want to sit here and nitpick every detail that's wrong, the reason I felt compelled to speak up, I'm hoping that people will start having the conversation is I think this is just part and parcel of a bigger picture issue here. When they make a series like this, just talk us through the process a bit, because, you know, most people won't have experienced it. But how much do they have to tell you they're going to show of your of the person who's masquerading as you? Is there much cooperation? No, I had nothing to do with it. I gave neither consent nor input, but I'm not sure what one is technically allowed to do. To me, this does seem over so many lines, but um, here we are. <laughs> Will HBO be making a, a series using your account? Not at the moment. The rights have reverted to me and it's not in production. And who knows what the future will bring, but at the moment, that's a bit of a relief. But at the moment, does it feel like there is a dramatic version out there which a lot of people will be watching through Netflix, which doesn't really have your voice in it? Absolutely. My character is essentially a straw man. It's troubling and it puts me in this weird position I don't want to create the illusion of a Rachel versus Anna or a Rachel versus... I'm so far past that point in my life. I'd love to move on, but I do see the trouble with this sort of fact fiction braided narrative that's creating what seems to me like a misinformation campaign and also one that affected real-time criminal justice proceedings. It's the same as watching the con, watching whether it's the private jets, the flashy, whatever it is, people are watching the spectacle of this in the same way they watched Anna during the trial and were making so much about what she was wearing. And to me, I'm so fixated on what's happening behind the scenes because I've been through this before and I know you get taken advantage of when you are relaxed, when you think there's nothing at stake. That's when it's going to happen and it's never what you expect. That's how it works. It's 
For you, does it feel a bit like Anna obviously sort of came along, manipulated you, conned you? Is that kind of happening all over again with this series? I would argue, yes. Obviously, I don't think everybody's going to be out $62,000, but I do think that there is something deep and troubling about the way that this sort of entertainment is slipping through the gates where it's neither documentary nor fiction. It's important to also look at who entertainment is benefiting, who's profiting and at whose expense. Alan, for you, your story is in a very different place, I guess, in that the Netflix documentary has managed to get it a lot of global attention, which hopefully for you means that your journalism, the investigation and what people know about this swindler is now sort of you know going around the world. And hopefully it means that he won't be able to con people again. But there is now talk of that documentary being turned into a drama. Is that something you would welcome? Tough question and quite surreal for a, you know a simple Norwegian to even ha- had to ponder about something like that. But of course, the dangers that Rachel is mentioning uh, would be obvious in this case as well. We see now how uh, Simon Levive has got a, an agent in Hollywood. There are talks about dating shows or learning people how to date or whatever, and and that's you know the complex dynamic of entertainment industry journalism, social media. When he's exposed, he becomes incredible famous. His Instagram accounts, they go down, but when they come up, he's, he's got, you know, 100K followers in a matter of a day or so, as far as I understand. So The irony. Yeah, so there's a lot to navigate and think through about how journalism, entertainment, and social media interact uh, with these true stories of a scam, of a scheme. It makes you wonder. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. 
Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Is there a point where you sort of think the fascination in the story just becomes too much? You know, the idea that his Instagram account sort of actually went even bigger when people heard, you know, what a swindler he was. is weirdly a counterintuitive. It must be hard for you as a journalist when you're trying to call somebody out for being a villain, for being manipulative. And actually somehow the world we live in seems to prize that even more. To a certain extent, I, I think the good forces are, are winning through here. The wave of people supporting the victims, denouncing the crimes, that's the majority. But you'll always have those who view either Anna or, or Simon Leviev as sort of anti-heroes. And uh, that's the paradox. You expose him and you make it, I hope, impossible for normal people to ever be victims of him again. But still, you end up seeing him as a social media star. Is social media a big part of this? I mean, without social media, would they have been able to pull off these scams, particularly with Simon Leviev, where, you know, as you say, his Instagram seemed to be almost sort of his calling card? Yeah, I find that interesting because I would assume that the way to do it for, you know, a common would be, you know, keep a low profile, go under the radar, not draw too much attention to yourself, get what you want and get out of there. But with social media, you see, and with Anna and Simon, you see the quite opposite. They utilize, some would probably say weaponize social media. They go in the opposite direction and maximizes the potential of social media and try to transport themselves for their personas into the real world by having this huge amount of followers pretending or actually having, you know, a big social network, also, you know, a product of social media in itself. So that's also, you know, a paradox and a complex dynamic between social media and the scam. I think for everyone, when you try to figure out the person, you go to their social media accounts and that gains your trust somehow if there are followers, if there are a social network there. And, and in that way, you're also maybe able to transport your victims into that world the other way around by all the signals and verifiers that, yeah, you're a real person. You got a lot of friends and your wealth is real because, you know, it's, it's out there. It's posted on Instagram. So how could it not be real? You sort of see all these pictures of people in private jets and on luxurious holidays, and it seems to back up their stories. In a way, it's odd, though, because we all know, whether you're doing it for scamming purposes or not, that social media is used by people to sort of curate and create an image of themselves, which isn't necessarily real. Guilty. <laughs> exactly. So we've somehow got to get more savvy at this. Rachel, Ellen mentioned something very interesting there. You know, the idea that Simon Leviev now has actually, has a Hollywood agent, has become sort of a hero to some, or people have a fascination for him, which seems odd given everything that he's done. You know, you'd sort of hope that people would be appalled and would turn their backs on him, but they want to know more. Similarly, Anna Delvey, she seems to be being portrayed as an anti-hero in all of this. She's been compared to a modern day Robin Hood taking from the rich and tipping workers with $100 bills. This Netflix series in particular really does seem to glamorize her story and want the audience to root for Anna rather than the people she's conning. How do you think she managed to achieve that kind of status? You know, having gone through the legal process where people sort of suddenly saw that she'd been this con artist effectively, how has she managed to come back? It's not new that someone gets tricked and taken for a wild ride. But I think each time it happens, people sort of marvel at the sleight of hand. And it also creates this foundation onto which people project their own interpretations of what happened. I think in some ways, the story takes on a life of its own and it becomes richer and bigger and wilder than it actually was in real life. For example, from what I can tell based on 
attention from trolls I'm now receiving. I'm told Anna financed my life or bought me all these things. In reality, Anna never bought me an article of clothing. She never bought me any accessories. They just never happened. But I see how, in my instance, it was the criminal defense's way of weaving a narrative to try and justify her behavior where she was just trying to fake it until she could make it. You know, she didn't have the same advantage so many people in New York have. And look at her hustle. Isn't she great? I think he kind of played off of this idea of that every woman sort of struggle I had to cut corners because of the rich were too rich or something, ignoring the fact that I wasn't rich. And people conveniently ignore nuance in order to tell a bigger, better story or whatever story it is they want to tell. How does that leave you feeling? Because this is stuff that isn't true, but is now out there for good. I can't believe you're being trolled by it. I mean, obviously it's violating, but it's also just, it's hard to even internalize because it has so little to do with me as a person, but it's scary. And you see how misinformation takes hold and spreads. And it's very hard to correct a narrative like that. There's very little I can, I feel that I could do, but I have two psychologists for parents and I've, I've been through what I've been through with Anna once before I've, I've experienced what gaslighting feels like. And I think having now had however many years. I went to Marrakesh in 2017. It's now 2022. To heal from that, I feel much stronger and more aware of what's happening. And I'm doing my best to sort of amplify a message about what it is, the different patterns of behavior involved with this. Because in some ways, who knows if I'll I'll be able to make any sort of a difference. Quite a big uh, machine that Netflix. I mean, you're, you're being very steric about this, but just for people listening, I mean, if it's not too grim a prospect, would you mind just sort of spelling out how damaging it was for your life when Anna conned you out of so much money? And then what you're having to go through in terms of the trolls now? Because it seems to be a remarkable double whammy that because of this Netflix series, you're now having to put up with more abuse. My particular situation today feels a lot like an episode of Black Mirror. It's very surreal to me, but I think with this kind of a crime, people have seem to have this idea of what a victim is supposed to look like. Initially, back in 2017, when Anna owed me, it was $62,000, which was more than I net annually at the time. And it was paralyzing. It was confusing. I really trusted her and I really was relying on her to follow through. I had no reason not to trust her at that point, so far as I could tell, obviously. As the puzzles got more cryptic and as she got more elusive, it became very maddening. And I think the the quest to understand what was happening became just as strong as my need to resolve this enormous debt. So it was three agonizing months of panic attacks, telling American Express the same thing she was telling me, which then made me feel like I was stringing them along too, because I certainly was. That was all I could do. I didn't tell many people. It's so hard to tell a story like that. How do you even begin? And especially before you have any explanations yourself, because I could barely get through a day, let alone pause to explain every step I was trying and everything I'd already tried. I just didn't have the energy. I didn't have the wherewithal. I didn't sleep much. My hair was falling out. I had to take loans from friends. It was definitely the most agonizing period of my life. And I understand that that's relative. I get that I'm privileged and I I hate that with this type of a crime, you find yourself sort of defending the the fact that you were wronged. Even like the jury has this preconceived notion of of what a victim should be and how they ought to behave. Um, And I really ran up against that. Rachel, it sounds like you went through just a horrifying period. It just sounds extraordinarily stressful. How does it feel now for a company as big as Netflix to be using it effectively as entertainment to the point where you are being abused online? It just seems remarkable. 
It feels very lazy and irresponsible would be my answer. That's the world's largest streaming service. Personally, I don't see any excuse for them to have thought this was going to be okay. That said, I recognize what's happening. It doesn't make it okay. Looking at my Instagram right now, I'm just getting the nastiest of insults that have no basis in fact whatsoever. This is new to me. This does feel very upside down and surreal. I am not sleeping much. I'm okay. I'm surrounded by people who know and love me and understand also what's happening. So I think there's a different degree of openness and I feel much more prepared as much as anyone could be to sort of begin to navigate what to do next and to articulate the patterns of behavior that are happening here and to understand when people don't understand why that's happening. I guess I'm doing my best to explain it as it happens as loudly as I can, like banging pots and pans, hoping people will figure out that there's something bigger going on here. Erlen, for you, with Simon Leviev, as he was known, has the reaction been quite different? I mean, is he seen as an anti-hero too? For the majority, uh, no. But you you always see, you know, uh, the breakthrough infections <laughs> or in social media, you know, with, with people elevating him in, in some sort of way. And uh, I guess also these calm stories, they speak to narratives that are very attractive. It's the rise and fall curve. Uh, it's the audacity of the crime. It speaks to basic human experience like you know trust and trust being broken and they hold you know this promise that in the end the bad guy is going to be exposed so i think that's you know a part of why these stories uh, real or unreal gain so much attention there's also you know he claims no wrongdoing he claims that worst case he just lent some money and he blames the victims that they are the ones that are lying and he has done nothing wrong in, in almost you know trumpian style and uh Nothing sticks to that wall when it comes to, you know, to reflection or, or afterthought. And at least there, by, you know, reading interviews with Anna, that seems a bit different. There are some kind of reflection there. There is a continuum to some extent. But I just read the latest one in New York Times. But I'm interested in hearing Rachel's thoughts on, you know, compared to Simon Leviev on that I think you're right. And even when we think about her and the Art Foundation as having some grand plan, I think Anna is very good at being a chameleon and at playing these different parts, whether it's the penitent prisoner or the wannabe art aficionado. It's not to say that that isn't sincere when it's happening. I think I'm not inside of her head, thank goodness. But I think she has some level of obviously, she seems to superficially understand what it is she's doing in the moment. I think the emotions are real, but I just don't think the longevity of an agenda is something that she's really capable of because I'm not quite sure she has that capacity for that level of profound reflection or um, forethought, really. And Erland, with Simon, even if he isn't recognizing what he's done, if he's doing that Trumpian thing, and it sounds like Anna too, you know, they don't necessarily recognize or internalize what they've done wrong. Do you think the response of people, you know, you said earlier that generally the good was winning out. People are sort of appalled by what he's done. Do you think that's partly because of the way you presented the story, you know, from the perspective of the women and showing that there was sort of an emotional entanglement as well as the money? Did that help to shape people's reactions? Yeah, and I think that's maybe where entertainment and journalism part ways. In journalism, there is a certain ethics standard. And the impulse of journalism is always to tell the story from the bottom and up, from the victim's side, in this case, Cecilia and Pernilla. So I think that makes a big difference indeed. And Erland, I was really interested in what Rachel was saying earlier about juries and, and people have an expectation of what a victim looks like. Because intriguingly, um, the author Frederick Joseph has talked about the Tinder Swindler 
and said that if it had been a black man who was swindling white women like that, he would be in prison right now. And if women of colour had been swindled, there would be no documentary. What do you think about that comment? Well, I certainly hope it's not true. Maybe I live in a fantasy world, but I, I hope our newsroom would have done the exact same thing. Do you think he would be more likely to be in prison now? Well, then I think you need to go to the pure, boring facts of how he operated his scam, you know. And in the case of Cecilia, you know, he she was a UK resident. He was an Israeli citizen. They met in the UK. Nothing wrongdoing happened there. Her credit card was taken with her on the flight to Amsterdam. He spent those money from South Africa to Bangkok to Berlin to Barcelona. And she was a Norwegian citizen. So where she reported the crime in the UK, where basically none of the money was spent. And in Norway, the same thing. So how do you how do you pursue crimes like that uh, when you have to deal with you know boring stuff as national police jurisdictions and that's the way a modern uh, day scammer operates and that's also the lesson he learned from his previous scams because you know he was in Finland for several months in 2015 and got arrested there because you know he moved in with women he had a, a long term scam which created incentive for Finnish police to go after him because it was Finnish victims and it was money spent in Finland and he was in Finland uh, so he then could be prosecuted in Finland I, I think you need to look into that stuff as well before you, you know make any large racial narrative around this I wanted to ask you both, really, is there a, a moral to this story in terms of society's relationship with the rich? I mean, Erland, when it came to Simon Leviev, we could see people making allowances for him. Restaurants would treat him better than other guests. They'd fall over themselves to sort of serve him the best of, of what they had. And people would want to give him free goods or people would want to try to impress him almost. Is there something about that that we should probably stop and recognise? Yes, uh, of, of course. And I think social media and how wealth is portrayed there adds to that problem or, or paradox where that wealth and private wealth in mansions and in on travel and on yachts are being on public display for everyone to see and probably elevates this infatuation with wealth. And Rachel, is that something that you sort of saw around Anna? It is to some extent when I was her friend, but I, I worked at Vanity Fair. I was used to traveling a lot for work. I had been around like significant money before I personally obviously didn't have it. I'd say I was wealth adjacent, but with Anna, we mostly stayed in her hotel. We ate at Le Cuckoo, which was this very decadent restaurant within her hotel often. And then of course, when we went to Morocco, we stayed in one of the world's nicest resorts. But the way I've really seen wealth play out is more in the disparity of perspectives on the other side of the crime. The way that different people interpret whether bankers deserved it or, or financial companies deserved it, or if I deserved it because I'm young, white, and privileged, like, does that make the crime somehow less than a crime because I am not actually, in, to some people in their minds, hurting for the money or something? There's a real distraction to the story with Anna that has to do with materialism and money. And it's part of why it's now on Netflix. It's definitely part and parcel of the same fascination with this lifestyle that must have motivated Anna too at the offset to want to be a part of this flashy world. With Anna herself, do you think it was the illusion she gave of money or was it sort of some sort of personal charm that was sort of the secret to her appeal? For me personally, I, I liked her as a person. She was funny. She's clever. She's smart. She's ambitious. I hate to give her all these compliments, but there's a reason people find her interesting. I think there is this caricature of which money is definitely a facet, but 
I personally never saw her throwing around cash and never went shopping with her. I think she really presented a different side of herself to each person she spent time with. And she was very good at sort of becoming whatever it is you needed in a friend. Erland, is there sort of almost a depressing realisation now that people like that, these amazing con artists, do seem to win in the end? It was certainly in these two cases. Simon Leviev, as you said earlier, now has a Hollywood agent. Yeah, I think we should keep that on the anecdotal level. I think he's put out of business when it comes to scams. But the women he conned are still paying back the money that they lost to him, whereas he seems to have have regained a lot of his old lifestyle. Yeah, that's true. And that's, you know, back to the boring jurisdictional stuff. Uh, He was extradited to Israel and he was uh, convicted for smaller crimes for Jeff checks back in 2011. And that verdict came then in 2019. And he only spent five months in jail after that, a free man. And... uh, there's uh, not, as far as you know, any reason to believe that he will ever be prosecuted for the crimes in Europe unless Interpol or European police in some way choose to approach Israeli authorities about that. So yes, it is hard reality for the victims that he will probably not be prosecuted for that and they are still paying off their debts. And Rachel, is there an element of that with Anna? There is to some extent, but I think in Anna's case... It really seems like the illusion of Anna is what has won this Netflix legacy almost of her. Although from from what I've been told that the television show isn't actually that good, but it does definitely glamorize her and she did profit from it. But she herself was arrested by the immigration enforcement here in the United States because she's not a citizen and she overstayed her visa and she's trying to appeal her deportation to Germany because she'd rather be here. So she herself is in jail right now and, and I don't necessarily know how that will play out for her. Knowing Anna, she tends to get what she wants and she can be pretty convincing. But I guess I would say if it looks like she's winning, we're just not at the end yet. Well, thank you both for joining us to talk about these two characters. Thank you, Rachel, for being so open and for coming and banging your pots and pans. And hopefully people will have heard it. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you, Erland Oft Anson and Rachel Williams, the author of My Friend Anna. Rachel's book is out now from Quercus. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. I'm Manveen Rana. Thanks so much for joining us. Mmm, the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.